0: but essentially because they're not getting it from their school system, their parents, they're having to rely on what they see in the culture around them. And the culture around us is that we're glamorizing sexual assault through music, through video games, through movies, through advertising. I mean, you name it across the board, it's all objectification and and sexualization. And so we take out the human element. And when it comes to sex and especially sexual assault, you have to have empathy.
1: Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Welcome back to Almost 30 Podcast.
2: I am Lindsay Simsek. And I'm Krista Williams. And we are so glad you're here. So glad you're here. Welcome. I am... Really into simplifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Keep it plain and simp. Keep it plain got and no simp. No
1: manicure, no petty. You got the lashes off. They're off. How do you feel? I'm probably
2: not going back. Your, your eyelashes are actually long. They're okay. I have a mascara on right now. Oh, you do? A little bit. Hmm. Just for me? But I got the. Just for you. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. I had coffee little coffee dates this morning. So I was like, I shouldn't scare them. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Totally. I want them to know I'm awake. (laughs) Tell me about your experience. What are your
2: thoughts? I got them off and then I was like... This is life. The thing about it is I would recommend them to anyone. It's not that they were annoying. It's not that... I think the annoying part is just getting them done every three weeks or whatever. And it's a cost, you know. But I just felt... Like sometimes my lashes would be something people were looking at instead of looking at me. You know, they're like, are those real? Or are those... Because she does such a good job. It's like relatively natural looking and all that stuff. But it's like, you know what? I'm just gonna chill. I, I just want to chill on all the things because I, I do still have gel nails on and I, I'm going to go on natural when they're done. But yeah, I'm just like, I'm into that right now. Like I don't need to... Do all the things. It's almost like a test for myself. Oh, I love that. I forget I have a face when I talk to people. Mm-hmm. I forget I have a body.
1: I'm like, hello. And I'm just thinking of me. And then I'm like, oh, I have clothes on. Mm. It's weird. <laughs> like honestly, it's like like I wouldn't like it's like thinking about my lashes. I'm like, I know I have them and I like when I look in the mirror and I look at photos, but Same. it's like I forget. That I look a certain way whenever I'm with people. Completely,
2: you know. Someone in the group said the other day, and I really related, and I didn't know what to say because it sounded stupid when it came out of me. But I was, she said something about like, Like, does anyone, yeah, ever feel like they look differently in pictures than they feel? And that's all the time, literally all the time. I I pray that that's the truth. I play my, I pray my delusion is is truth, truly, because it's it's a it's. It's weird and then I get like kind of bummed out at myself for feeling like, uh, when I look I at pictures. And it's so, you know, so yes, we relate and I'm really not sure what that is. I mean, it's painful. That's been my
1: biggest learning since doing all of this is like 100 pictures, 100 video. I'm like, who is that person? And that's why you see people kind of go off the edge. a mm-hmm. 100 pounds. They mm-hmm. get all the work done. They go crazy. And it's it's
2: hard not to if you're looking at yourself 24 7 I know, but I'm just wondering like what that what that gap is. Cause like we could feel yeah. a certain way. Yo, you know, I could go dangerous. into an event being like, I feel good, 100. I feel like beautiful. I feel fit. I feel this. I feel that. And then I see a picture. I'm like, why do I spiral down a fucking 100%. hole? And I don't want that to happen. Cause like I don't there's a part of it that's not real. I think a camera is very weird. I, I think there's something that happens in a camera that is weird. And also it's capturing a single moment of a single angle, of a single expression, of a single whatever. So I don't know. Maybe it's just not looking at pics. I mean, that's my thing. <laughs> or looking more so that you're just like, don't care. I love you. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, I'm just
1: like, oh, whatever.
2: I have Seth Rogen's body. It's fine. fine. Whatever. <laughs> but it is, you know, we all have our own body dysmorphia stuff. So it's silly. just, I, yes, we totally, totally fine. Yeah, I actually really liked that post. I was like, oh. mm-hmm.
1: and that's interesting too. Like I'll never forget when I was in high school, I was like a sophomore at the time and I saw a picture that was on web shots on it, online. So oh. when people were up, oh, yeah. taking photos and uploading them somehow or, or maybe it was even before, it was like a, a photo that we got developed. I forgot about them. And I was like, and I saw a photo from a Fujifilm disposable camera that got developed of myself. And it was like the first time I had seen a photo of myself, kind of. Mm. You know, I had seen them when I was a child. I'd yeah. seen them when I was baby. My parents actually weren't very big photo people. If you guys oh are surprised. Um, no photos, no video. They They don't really care. I mean, they weren't even really with us to be doing that. But anyway, so I saw a photo of myself and I saw what I looked like. And I was like, oh my God. Wow. Mm. Like I didn't know that's what I looked like. And I didn't, it was just surprising. to It was kind of nice at the time. It was painful, but I was like, oh, I didn't realize that was me. Mm. You know, and it was kind of a wake up call. But now kids these days and, and even us, it's like,
2: get a photo every day. People have photos wow. of you every day. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I've been trying to, I don't know what I've been trying to do. I actually, it was kind of, I want to cite a conversation I had with, someone I had coffee with this morning and she um, is younger and just such a, so sweet and has had brain surgery and spinal surgery. Really like a, a, a journey in the last few years. So beautiful now and, and wears a lot of makeup and is just very done up. And she was asking um, how to connect more with people through what she's been through. And I just had a moment with her because I I've I've I saw myself in her in the way that like, I've just tried to kind of cover up, you know, to... I don't know. There's been lots of different reasons why. Whether it's my skin or just wanting to show people that I'm someone I'm not. And so I told her, I was like, listen, I was like, you are so beautiful inside and out and so beautiful without makeup too. Like I think really stripping down because your story is so raw and real like that will be a way to do that like with a with video content she was asking about like connecting through social media and um you know it was really like I could see her fear in it she was like she's like I'm so insecure in that way and I was like I know like a lot of us are like a lot of us are and I don't know whether she's gonna do it but she's like okay like that that makes sense to me like I totally see that and how that might be creating kind of a a Barrier between me and connecting with someone, and but the the point of it is like I just oh god I've done I've done that before and I still do it in some ways, you know, so yeah I've been like just thinking more about that with social media like how am I portraying, what am I portraying, mm-hmm. and is it really me and like yeah, hopefully ninety nine percent of the time like just without trying to be something else or what what I think people want to see. Yeah. It's
1: interesting to think about like what masks we've worn or what masks Mm -hmm. we wear. Whether it's literally, you know, like makeup or Mm -hmm. figuratively, like the mask and masculine.
2: (laughs) Don't say (laughs) it. (laughs) Or
1: like, I don't know. Just like something that's keeping you as like a boundary from connecting with the real you Mm -hmm. in a way. But yeah, I don't know. I was actually thinking on the plane because I didn't, I haven't worn makeup in two weeks, Mm -hmm. probably since our last event. And I had to wear it last night. And I was like on the plane and I was like looking at this, this mom was talking to me or this woman who is a mom. And she was wearing like full face. And I was like, damn, like I wonder if I'll ever wear a full face just every day. No, like no shade, no shade, Mm -hmm. like, like mad props to full face. Every day. Yeah. For real. Uh, but I was just thinking that. I'm like, oh, I've kind of missed that boat where like I would wear
2: makeup. Totally. I was thinking about, I mean, even just spending time with my mom recently, and she's so like, I think she's so beautiful. She still wears whole face of makeup every day. And I think it's also just like getting older and they just have like an idea of what they look like. And but yeah, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder when what, what I would do. I know. I know.
1: Feel that.
2: Anyway, we had another really insightful comment in the group or a question. Oh yeah, it was actually a really, really sweet question that
1: I got DM'd that people actually in the group talk about as well. And this is from Caitlin and it was really sweet. Hi, I don't mean to bother you or suck energy out from you, but I was wondering what you do when you're feeling sad, like really sad for no particular reason. I appreciate you reading this and I hope one day I get to meet you and Lindsay. Thanks for all you do. And I thought that was a great question. I think it's... I I love to hear people's insights and, and inspiration around what they do when they're having a moment or they're having a day. And for me, I really felt liberated and free in my life. And I felt like my life completely changed when I stopped identifying with that feeling, when I stopped making that feeling of sadness, my identity. And when I realized the impermanence of it, you know, that every day I will feel, I will feel different every day. I will be different every day. Things will change, and I am not the sadness feeling. The sadness feeling is temporary, and it will change. And the way that I really navigate that situation is first um, analyzing, you know, what's going on in my life, or as it relates to basics: water, sleep, nutrition. Did I sleep last night? A lot of times, it's like you're like, oh, I'd be like, I remember this when I was working a lot, you know,
2: because
1: mm. at work you're like at your desk all day, or you're on the train, or you're commuting. And you have a lot of opportunities to be like, damn, how am I feeling? You know, you would think, I would think that I would be more distracted than I was, but it's a lot, you have a lot of email time. So I'd be like, oh, how am I feeling? And it, it, I never thought or correlated it to how much I had slept that night or how much water I'd been drinking or the food that I was eating. Because the food that you're eating directly correlates to how you're feeling. Yes. In a lot of ways with blood sugar, gut health, um, you know, how satiated you are, etc. So checking those boxes to understand like what's going on if you're looking to solve the issue. But I think if you take a second and you really breathe into it and kind of understand the message that it could be telling mm-hmm. you, if it does have a message, sometimes it doesn't. You know, I think that there's beauty in both ways. There's beauty in in kind of being like, oh, this is a feeling that will pass. And it's could be directly related to energy in a room where I walked into a room and there was someone that had bad energy and the energy is still there and I somehow caught it. Or it could be related to something that's going on in your life that, you know, maybe is a message that you should acknowledge and address and release. So there's a lot of different ways to address it if you're looking to like navigate yourself out of that unhappiness or that sadness situation. But I think when you uh, don't identify it, it's when things really change.
2: Yeah. Identify with it. Yeah. I completely... That's that's such a good point. I think the attachment to it sometimes makes us feel uh, safer in a way. Like the impermanence of things is kind of scary where it's always going to change. Like people don't really want to change. That's why I feel like people sometimes get it, um, addicted to that feeling of being low. Like they don't know how to come out of the hole because it's kind of home down there in the hole.
1: Feels like an ego attachment to the to the low because it's like mm. you tell all your friends, you tell all your family, yeah. you're like, Oh, I'm depressed. And then to all of a sudden be like, I'm happy, it's like what? Totally. You know, so people don't allow you to change, yeah. people don't allow people to evolve and grow. And then you also have an ego attachment to the feeling of low because you'd be embarrassed if you feel happy.
2: Yeah. I found too that just giving myself the permission to be like, I am feeling sad because so often I'd be like why am I feeling sad and that has to do with not attaching but it's just like allowing myself to be sad you know it's really it's some it's the beautiful part about being human is experiencing all of the emotions like living within the spectrum you know of being really happy and joyful one day and maybe being really Sad and grieving the next day, like that is just such a beautiful expression of who you are, and being sad without blaming yourself or blaming others necessarily it just is so i kind i don't know if I talked about this in the therapy episode, but a lot of times, like I'll express myself in therapy and say. I'm feeling this way, but you know, like they just don't know, like they're just, and I'll make excuses for the other person or situation. And my therapist will be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, you can feel that way. And like, you can be mad or you can feel frustrated by the fact that all this pressure, like speaking about family stuff, all this pressure is put on you right now. You can be like kind of pissed off. Like that is a lot, you know, whatever it is truly. So just allowing, and like Krista said, it it is impermanent, and it will just it'll roll through, yeah. And it'll and it'll just kind of disseminate into little bitty pieces, and not be so dense, you know, the next day. But if you step it down and you don't allow yourself to feel it, it will kind of resurface in other ways. So I think just the allowing, and then also. You know, bringing in community. Sometimes it's hard to like bring in people to the conversation because you're like, I don't want to bring them down. I don't want to do this. But honestly, just starting the conversation, usually people will relate. Hopefully, it's like non ego relating because sometimes people are like, well, I experience it's just like, hopefully, some people can listen and and conversate around the general issue. But I do think, you know, being in community has helped me. And even if it's just like going to a group fitness class and kind of feeling the energy of like a lot of people trying to, you know, get high on yoga. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm a little bit higher now. Like the baby steps, the moving the chains instead of being like, I need to be happy. I need to be happy. It's like, maybe I'm not gonna be fully, totally happy today, but can I just kind of raise the vibration just a little bit by doing, going on a walk, going to the ocean, Fucking just, you know, singing in the shower, whatever it is, just giving yourself that little push. You might need to push yourself because it's not always like the first thing you want to do. And then once you're doing it, I do think it can make a difference.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, it's also too, I didn't really understand before in my life that happiness could be achieved without other, without someone else, Mm -hmm. you know? So I didn't, my happiness was based on who I was dating. In our relate, you know, I was actually, you know, it, it was very much based on my female relationships, but I would say more so is based on my on my uh, male relationships because I would always have boyfriends, yeah, and it was really based on the status of our relationship, the love that they were giving me, the love that you know the what we were doing. So once I realized too that my happiness was within me, then things changed as well. So I think finding yeah. out if your love or your happiness is is based on situations or if it's cause-based. Did you do a good job at work this week? Did you work mm. out five times? Did you and your boyfriend go on a date or girlfriend or partner or whoever he or she, they meet, he, he, she, or they may be. What is the situation that is you know potentially causing that? Not that I'm saying that you shouldn't feel sad because of certain situations in their life, but I think that there is something to the unallowing of someone else to affect your mood. Not that I don't yes. you know. I've I mean saying that from Amen. It's a practice. Yeah, practice for sure. Day. For sure. But yeah, I I mean, and and now I just know I'm like, oh, it happens to everyone and it's there. And sometimes I'm just like, oh, interesting. Like, oh, I'm sad today. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, it's just kind of like a, a thought. I'm like, okay, is this planetary? Mm-hmm. Is this astrological? Is this health-wise? Is this life-related. There's just a lot of different things that it could be doing. So uh, feeling that out and trusting that, you know, it will get better.
2: Yes. Yes. What a good question.
1: Thank you so much for that sweet Appreciate one. those I appreciate like vulnerable
2: that. questions.
1: Yeah. I, that means a lot. Um, so before we get into this episode, which is super powerful, we're very excited about it. Let's talk about
2: our tour date announcements. Uh, tour. Um, we're going to be in New York for quite a chunk of time, about a week and a half, and we have three different events. I, I wish I could say, come to all three and we'll give you a, a new car, but come to all three and we're going to have good fucking time. Yes. Uh, we have our live show October 3rd. Our special guest is comedian Nikki Glazer. Fucking love her. It's mm-hmm. going to be really, really fun. She's an icon. Really, really fun. That's at Rough Trade in Brooklyn. October 4th is with Aaron Clare. This event is... All things human design, which is going to be so fascinating. We're going to dig deep. That is at the assemblage downtown in the financial district in New York City. And then we have October 9th with Stuart Pierce. This workshop is on the voice of change. You know, we are the voice of change, especially as women. We are rising. And he is currently working with Marianne Williamson, has worked with so many other powerful women like Princess Diana, just really harnessing the power of their own voice. And we could not be more honored. This is going to be a special one as well. So please get tickets on our website, almost30podcast.com. They will sell out.
1: Yeah. Cannot wait to see you guys in New York. Yeah. Okay. So the episode this week, very exciting with the lovely Brittany Piper. So we met her luckily when we were at the Good Fest in Austin. We were moderating the day and her session just brought down the fucking house. It was, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. She has a presence and a grace and a kindness and a warmth and a um uh an openness that is just like unparalleled and her story is very very um, I'm not. Try- I'm trying to think of a different of, of a word to accurately describe her story.
2: Uh, it's just. It's crazy. Yeah, she actually um, has a new a video that really kind of tells her story in visual form, and it's really beautifully done. She's narrating it as well. It's super raw. It's a story of resilience, vulnerability, inspiration, of trauma. Uh, Brittany is a speaker now in the wake of um, a really traumatic sexual violent act uh, that happened years ago, but now she is a sexual violence prevention expert and healing coach who helps audiences uncover the transformational power of second chances. And yeah, I'm just I'm I'm so impressed with with who she is and how she is impacting people all over the world. Yep, she can be found at BrittanyPiper.com.
1: and she actually has a treat, retreats mm-hmm. that she hosts to help women heal through sec, heal heal their sexual trauma. And I do want to note uh, trigger warning, you know, for Absolutely. this conversation. Just please be aware that we are talking graphically about sexual trauma, about rape, about very difficult situations that if you are feel You could be triggered by it or are triggered by it. I would, you know, pick another episode to listen to or just understand that.
2: So please, please, please take us seriously when we say that. Yes. Thank you so much, Brittany, for coming on the podcast and for sharing so openly. And we just thank all of you for tuning in, for sharing episodes, for writing reviews on iTunes. That really means a lot to us on Apple Podcasts and for visiting us on tour. It's the best. We can't wait to meet you almost30podcast.com and follow us on Instagram for all things Almost 30. We are in our DMs answering you and and love hearing from you. Always join our secret Facebook group, which is about 13,000 women from all over the world who are supporting one another. We're laughing in there. We're crying. We're finding inspiration and we just love it. So thank you. Thank you. We love you. Love you. life is better with sauces, Uh, dressings, marinades, all the things. Can't do without it. Our go-to chosen foods. This is a San Diego-based health food company best known for starting the avocado oil uh, craze <laughs> They offer a variety of healthy fats and clean label products like avocado oil, avocado oil mayo, um, avocado oil-based salad dressings, of course, the avocado oil sprays that we love. It's a cult favorite here over at Almost 30 Nation. Uh, they really focus on real food made with clean label ingredients. Uh, we're super pumped because Chosen Foods is giving Almost 30 Nation an insane discount. So I would definitely recommend checking out their avocado oil sprays. I'm loving the lemon dill right now and the citrus pepper. I marinate my white fish or wild salmon or chicken in it. freaking delicious or I'll just spray it on popcorn y'all. So for our listeners, chosenfoods.com slash almost 30, use the promo code almost 30 during checkout for 50% off your order of $10 or more. That's half off your order of $10 or more. When you go to chosenfoods.com slash almost 30 and use the promo code almost 30 at checkout. I am and will always be on my collagen game. And I am loving Further Food, uh, their new Chocolate Collagen Peptides Protein Powder. I love putting this in my coffee. I love using it to make a smoothie. I just think it's so delicious and creamy. It's great for your skin, hair, and nails, your gut health, and joint support. And this is a grass-fed and pasture-raised collagen. So that's really important where your collagen comes from. There's nine grams of protein, zero net carbs and zero grams of sugar. So this is keto paleo friendly if you're wondering. And I just love the pricing on further food products like this collagen peptide uh, chocolate protein plus reishi mushroom is only $29.95. That's really Really good. So, we would love for you to try Further Food. Not only do they have collagen products, um, but they also have a turmeric tonic that I really love. They have a mindful matcha that is just delicious. So, check out furtherfood.com. And you can use our code ALMOST30 for 30% off your first order. That's furtherfood.com. And you can use our code ALMOST30 for 30% off. If you are not supplementing with collagen, please, please start when we uh, hit our 20s, our body starts producing less collagen. So let's definitely supplement. We need it. It makes up our connective tissue, organic bone mass and skin, all that good stuff. So furtherfood.com, use our code almost 30 for 30% off. Well, we're so happy to have you here. I mean, we fell in love with you when we hosted the Good Fest in Austin and we're just blown away by your story and your vulnerability. And Power on stage, you know, yeah. we've been kind of like really, uh, uh, tuning in to people's presence, whether they're on stage, off stage, just how they hold space. And, you know, I know you haven't, you've been doing this for a while, but not as long as you would think when you watch you speak, it's, you think you have been doing this forever. So
0: it's quite a compliment. Really it is. It's here. true. Thank you.
1: There's so many elements that we think about now when we're thinking about being on stage and, I do maybe one of 50 of them that I see and think about, but it's just, there's a lot to it. And for you to hold all the attention of the room and really the, and just have everyone rooting for you and just your humanness when you did it. And it was definitely the highlight of the day, you know, for the women and stuff. So yeah, it it, we just were like so excited to have you on.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And you're a a, Cincy girl, baby. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah hometown yes it's funny that you say that i i actually used to have like a debilitating fear of public speaking it was it was pretty awful and when i first joined my my speakers agency we had to do like a showcase all the new speakers in front of the company i completely bombed it it was supposed to be 10 minutes it lasted about four minutes and then i <sighs> <Holy> <laughs> lost, <laughs> i lost myself in my tears and i was like i need a moment and i turned around I, it, it, this was in a boardroom, by the way. Turned mm. around, put myself in the corner of the room and just cried. I might have actually told you this story. Yeah, I, th- I feel I think like... I feel like did.
2: Either... I don't remember. I don't know if you told it on stage or to us, but I mean, say boardroom. And I'm like, I don't yeah. want to speak in a... Yo, that scale. is the truth. You know what I mean?
0: It was weird. It was
1: it was a little strange. That is the truth. Yeah. But I think about that often. I'm like, I wish I had the same... The skills I have now back in the corporate days. Mm-hmm. I would crush <laughs> I would
0: crush meetings, yeah, but I I get really nervous before I go on stage, like just psych myself out. But I think that's also sometimes a bit of a uh, a prideful and selfish thing. And like when I remind myself, like, girl, it's not about you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if selfish is the word, but I definitely like know self, what you mean. What's not self-centered, but like... But I know what you mean. Looking inward 100. instead yeah.
1: Yep. yeah. Yeah. It's like, I guess it is egoic if you're like, oh, I need to do good. It's right. like really the message will speak for itself. And it's really about the message and yeah. not your... Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that it's not in any way. But yeah. and But I mean, I was thinking about it before we got on. And before we speak, we're like, hey guys, what's up? Yeah. Like we're Chris and Lindsay. But before you speak, you're actually speaking to some of the darkest moments of your life. So when you came, even when you come today, like, do you have a feeling where you get like a lump in your throat? You're like, okay, here we go again. Like, I, I need to talk about this insanely impactful, dark thing that I experienced.
0: You know, not quite. Maybe it's because I've been talking about it for so long. So like when my trauma happened, I did a really good job of like, you know, throwing it all under the rug and that got me in a really bad place. But speaking like my trauma narrative out has just been really freeing for me. And so I think that's what made, that's what's made me more comfortable is because I know that it's, it's helpful for me and helpful for other
2: people. Yeah. I don't, I don't really get a, a lump in my throat. It's yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, yeah, I can imagine it's therapeutic. Yeah. Very. And I think though it's almost like, um, I don't know the term, but like exposure therapy where you yes. like hear it out loud and it, it almost. Set, I would imagine that kind of settles your nervous system around those words, those visual, you know, the images and the memories. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an, an embodied
0: experience. And they say that you have to feel it to heal it. And you have to speak it out loud in order to feel it. You know, there's like a whole, there's kind of a, a process to it. And so speaking it out loud has kind of been like my my therapy.
2: Mm. Yeah. Could you share with our listeners your story? Sure.
0: So my story, I know you both of you have heard a little bit of my story. Girl, go in detail, baby. <laughs> I need to hear it again. Um, so it starts back in 1988 when I was born. I was born in San Diego, California. But when I was born, there was actually methamphetamine found in my system. So my mom was a really young mom. She kind of had her own trauma that she was dealing with. And so when I was brought into this world, there were, you know, obviously there was a chemical imbalance. Uh, so I was taken by child protective services. I was put into foster care for the first few months and then my grandparents took me in until my mom got her life back on track. And it's it's kind of hard for me to talk about sometimes because I feel like I'm also sharing her trauma narrative. But to this day, I mean she's one of the strongest and most amazing women that I know. You know, she's kind of like the the testament of yeah, we can go through hardship and we can make mistakes, but it doesn't have to define us. But I didn't learn about that part of my life until I was a, like a teenager. That was kind of new to me. But um, did your mom get, get you back? Sorry, did your mom get you back then? If you were with child, she did. Objective? Yeah, okay. yeah. So my grandparents took us in. Okay, and then she got got her life back on track. They kind of helped her t- to get to that place. And no one told you? No. Okay, I didn't. I didn't know. I don't know how old I was. I was probably like a preteen around that around that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, those fun days. Yeah, and then my biological father wasn't really in my life, but stepdad was always around. He was. He's been around as long as I've known. As, as long as I can remember. And so he's always been dad. Um, and I'm actually a daddy's girl. So um, I didn't feel like that sense of abandonment really affected me until I was a little bit older. And then when I was 15, my brother, Dominic, uh, he was killed in a car accident when we were in high school. Uh, and that was difficult for me because when my mom was kind of getting her shit together, you know, Dominic and I were like the one constant in each other's life. So we kind of had this bond, you know, cause he was, he was taken as well. We kind of had this bond. And so, yeah, losing him was really hard. And then um, following that, I didn't really know how to cope with it or how to, how to deal with it. And I think my parents did the best that they could at that time. They just really wanted to bring our family together. But again, we kind of set, they kind of set the precedent for let's just throw stuff under the rug. And I think they went, they were back at work within like a week or two. Wow. Yeah. Were you in Ohio then? We were in Ohio. I wonder if I heard about it. You might have. I'm, I'm pretty sure
1: that I would have heard about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And there were a couple of um, deaths that year wow. uh, at, our, at our high school. Yeah, so, right. yeah, so that was hard. And then following that, I went off to school in New York. And this was, a, of course, after a couple of years of drinking and just starting to go down a bad path. So I went off to school in New York. I was playing lacrosse. And I was in this new environment with new friends. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to be remembered anymore as like the girl with the dead brother. So I like kept my shit to myself. And, but that pain again started to like fester under the surface. And I ended up in a hospital within the first semester of college. Uh, I had alcohol poisoning, a blood alcohol content of a 0.38 and I flatlined. You think that would have been my wake up call? (laughs) So um I was suspended from school. I went home and I decided that's not the place for me. You know, I, I need to be home around my people. Started attending AA. I even live with my sponsor, but of course, healing and, and recovery is not perfection. And um, so there were times where I was still drinking and uh, but overall I was I was kind of getting back on a better path. And then about a year and a half later, I was out one night with friends, we were hanging out. When we went to part ways at the end of the evening, I realized that one of my girlfriends took my phone. Uh, She had my phone in her purse. And so I kind of ventured out into the middle of the night to retrieve my phone from her. I got a flat tire, ended up in a gas station in a really shady area. Um, And this is when we moved to Indianapolis. So I wasn't as, as familiar with the area. And there was a guy there and he helped me change my flat tire. And I offered him money as a way of saying thank you. And he kept just like insisting that I give him a ride home. And so against my better judgment, I let him into the car. And what happened after that is I was brutally raped and beaten. And then after a two-year grueling trial process of like re-victimization and just uh, have it, he had been in and out of the prison system pretty much his entire life. Mm. And so he really knew how to work the system. And so our case was continued or postponed eight times which meant that every single time that it was continued or postponed, I had to go in for tape statements, depositions. And I think sometimes like when you talk about exposure therapy, because I was exposed to like every graphic detail over and over again, at the time it was really traumatizing. But I think that in the long run, it helped me to really live through my trauma narrative. But after the trial, he was sentenced to 60 years and the news and the media, they really kind of blew up my case which is looking back, it's something that actually kind of angers me because I was a girl from like kind of a little bit more of an affluent community in Indianapolis. And this is a man from the inner city. But when they went to essentially find him, they found him three days, uh, three days after the assault happened. They went around to family and friends who had visited him over the years in, in the prison system. And uh, those people had said, oh, well, he assaulted so-and-so you didn't do anything about it. You know, and so I got really enraged and that's, um, it's kind of when I shifted my perspective of I need to help stop this. Um, but at the same time I was grappling with the news portraying me as this really strong, brave person. And, um, they labeled me as the survivor who refused to be broken. And so I felt like I had to live up to that public persona and I just buried all my shit, you know, under the sofa again. And, um, again it started to pile up and uh that trauma just started to live out loud in in my life uh in really dangerous ways and then my concrete bottom is what i call it <laughs> not even a year after the trial came to an end i was out with a friend one night he was drinking and driving that i would say that should give you a good, a good indication of where i was at in my life at the time mm. and um he was pulled over, arrested. And when the police went to pull me out of the car just to, you know, simply give me a ride home and my drunk in mind, I had a flashback of the night of my assault, you know, being pulled by a man in a car being touched and I snapped. And so I ended up in jail with one count of resisting arrest, one count of intimidation, and two counts of battery on an officer. And that was like my all time low low moment. And so my parents didn't bail me out. My dad was like, you got to learn to live with this stuff or else you're going to, you're literally going to kill yourself. And then I know part of my story, which I think you girls heard uh, at the good fest is when I talked about going in front of the judge and she knew who I was from my, my assault case. And she just said, we're going to give you a second chance, but you need to learn to live with your pain better. And that for me, was like the aha moment. I'm like this pain is going to be with me for the rest of my life, and you know she didn't say you need to learn to get over it or get past it. She said you need to learn to live with it, and so my life really kind of changed from there. And of course, it wasn't, and it's it's still not like a picture perfect journey. You know, you take ten steps back or ten steps forward, five steps steps back, and the process kind of repeats itself, but it gets better and better each day. So. That's the very long, long version. I just talked for like no. probably 20 minutes.
1: <laughs> I have so much. Um, There's so many parts of it that I I'm, I'm. I always cross my fingers when I want to remember certain things I want to talk about. But the first thing that I, I kind of want to delve into a little bit that I'm hopeful that, you know, and I, I believe that you know as much information on is our judicial system as it relates to that. And I'm curious because I, I think that I've read or heard about how they're now protecting younger girls from being in those situations where they're having to describe in graphic detail to a group of strangers what had happened to them. And there's something very weird about our judicial system in the way that we would describe in graphic detail rape. And I feel like there is a a fetishism about it. I feel like there's a way that people fetishize it. And I think it's very problematic. I definitely think that there's something to finding a narrative within your trauma story, but I don't necessarily know if... It's like you're proving yourself and I understand the the reasoning behind what we do and providing evidence for a case, etc. But I just want to explore that with you because I think it's really interesting.
0: Yeah. So I think it's interesting too. So my degree was in photojournalism and women's studies. And for my... I I think it was a dissertation from my women's studies. Um, I essentially explored the sensationalism of sexual assault and rape. But more specifically, I was focusing on third world countries. So like what happened in Rwanda and the Rwandan genocide and then in the Congo and people, how people weren't really talking about it because we had this like genocidal guilt um, about what happened in Rwanda and in the Congo essentially what started happening was there were populations of women that ha- that were all reporting sexual assault because that was the only way that they could get NGOs' attentions or the, the attention of NGOs um, or um, American ministries. Which is national government organizations, yes. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had to sensationalize these stories because that was the only thing that we would pay attention to. Like we didn't care that entire villages were being you know pillaged or that young children were dying that was the only thing that we paid attention to and um so that's a lot of what I talked about and I can't remember the name and this was after your your. this was after my assault okay. yeah um and I can't remember the name it's literally right on the, the tip of my tongue but she did a TEDx talk where she talked about the the power of a single narrative mm-hmm. um she was in that Beyonce song what is her name far it, it. But it's it's very similar to that. We have really sensationalized sexual assault. And when we do that too, we also normalize people to yeah. it. Yeah. And yeah. that's a lot of what I talk about when I talk to younger people about sexual assault prevention. Yes, but we have glamorized sexual assault.
1: Oh uh, Shimananda Ngozi.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's like the... I mean, people turn on the news and they don't blink if there's, you know, a rape downtown or, a, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's so disturbing, especially for, you know, kids, teens, seeing that, you know, hearing the news in the background, expecting that. And I'm wondering, like, what your experience has been talking to high school, college age um, people and their ability to engage with this. Sure. My skin is looking really good right now. And I wanna say this out loud because I think it's important. I've worked really, really hard and I've found a skincare brand that is results driven. So um, this is a clean, effective, multi-benefit, skincare line. And the ingredients are incredible. Um, This brand is native to Australia and they really take clean formulation seriously using minimal ingredients to achieve maximum results. It is Dr. Robox. Their products are cruelty-free, free free of paraben, sulfates, gluten, Gluten fillers, synthetic fragrances, which I love that it doesn't smell like anything. There's no harmful chemicals and dyes. And best of all, it's really, really great for all skin types. Currently, forever and always obsessed with the Ningaloo Firming Serum, not only because I love to say it, but because it really, really works. This is a gorgeous blue serum. It's a breakthrough six ingredient copper peptide serum that helps to firm and improve the elasticity of skin for a more defined, refreshed look. I do this and I put this on my face at night and I wake up in the morning and holy moly, I look amazing. So yeah, I just, I adore Dr. Robux. I also really, really love their cleanser. I sometimes find that a cleanser can make or break my skincare routine. And so I'm really loving the Nusa Nourishing Cream Cleanser. It's effective, clean, amazing. And then I use their lifesaver, which is the skin brightening toner afterwards. So try out Dr. Robux. We have a discount code almost 30 when you go to Dr. DR Robux. R O E B U C K S dot com. Use our code almost thirty for twenty percent off your first order. That's drrobucks.com. Use our code almost thirty for twenty percent off your first order. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals, we have a resource for you. And I was experiencing this recently. I was having a hard time focusing, my anxiety was pretty high, and I just wasn't feeling like myself. And so I went to BetterHelp betterhelp.com slash almost 30. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours, but this is not a crisis hotline. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide and you can log into your account at any time. It's super, super easy. Um, I was able to message my counselor at any time of day and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room or drive to your therapist appointment. So this is really convenient for those that are on the go and those just that feel more comfortable and In their own home. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's definitely more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is. Available. So if you want to start living a happier life today, visit their website and read their testimonials. They will give you insight into how many people have been helped by BetterHelp. So you can go to betterhelp.com slash almost 30. That's betterhelp.com slash almost 30 and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. So for our listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month, betterhelp.com slash almost 30. So I think,
0: so I've been talking to college students for about seven or eight years now. And I think that the message is being more easily received as time is going on because we are talking more about sexual assault. You know, I think the Me Too movement, Time's Up movement, those definitely help with that. And then when you see how it's, um, you know, Judge Kavanaugh and you know, kind of these big media cases, people are having conversations about it. Um, so they're, they're more open to the conversation, but in some ways they're also more against it because they fall on a very extreme perspective. It was... I will say one thing. It's become easier for me to talk to male audiences than it has in the past. I recently talked at the sex crimes conference in DC and a lot of detectives came up to me and they were like, how is that talking to men? And I'm like, it's actually getting easier. Um, over the years, there've been more men who kind of line up after my sessions and they're like, hey, you know, we have this going on in our community. Can you give us any, any advice? And I think a lot of that yeah. comes down to masculinity and then I kind of refer them to someone else. I'm like, There's an amazing guy in this space who can speak on masculinity much better than I can because that's not my experience. And I think it needs to come from another man. I think younger, younger people, I've been talking to middle schools and high schools more, which is um, actually kind of promising because I've always said that it needs to start at a really young age. Our sex education is failing children, Mm-hmm. Only 24 states in this country require sex education, and 70, over 70% of those programs are abstinence-based, which means that we're just telling kids, you know, wait until after marriage, which means that we're actually not talking about sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, the birds and the bees tradition is dying. And so, and then when we, when we do have sex education, we talk about safe sex in terms of this is how you don't contract STDs, this is how you don't get pregnant. This is what the women's reproductive system looks like. This is how men find pleasure, but we don't talk about the clitoris and women's pleasure. Mm-hmm. So we essentially turn it into bodies.
2: And right? the consent part of it. Like, I don't know if that's a conversation either. It's,
0: it's starting to, but there's so much. Parents have this fear and I, I, I can't understand it because I'm not a mother yet, um, but they have such a fear that if we talk to our kids about sex, that they're going to have more sex. And it's actually the opposite. So in like Sweden and the Netherlands, they have something called comprehensive sex education. And they talk to children about healthy sexual relationships, consent, um, loving relationships starting at a very, very young age, like elementary school. And the rates of sex, sexual assault are much, much um, less prevalent. And they have fewer partners. They wait until longer to have sex. If we talk about it more, we can empower them to make those decisions. But essentially, because they're not getting it from their school system, their parents, they're having to rely on what they see in the culture around them. And the culture around us is that we're glamorizing sexual assault through music, through video games, through movies, through advertising. I mean, you name it across the board, it's all objectification and and sexualization of bodies. And so we take out the human element. And when it comes to sex, and especially sexual assault, you have to have empathy. And if there's no human element, then you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that's what empathy is it's the ability to vicariously look at someone else's life. But if there's no human connection, it's just bodies, then of course there's not empathy.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, within the, when you did your research on the sensual or the, how we sensationalize this, what kind
0: of findings did you have? Um, well, I will say it was a number of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh that was back in 2000. Did you use yourself as an 13. example? Um I didn't, not at yeah. the time. I wasn't really. Old. I yeah, I wasn't really talking a whole lot about my story. Right, right. Um at at the time, right. but I mean, I think that there was a time where it was Okay, for instance, we're all about the same age. Do you remember the Abercrombie and Fitch models that stood outside of the Abercrombie and Fitch stores? Oh yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. All my
2: friends from high school, yeah. ex-boyfriend, yes. Yes. yeah. Yes. Like but they weren't the... models like yeah. in my town. It was like <laughs> yeah. the same string beans with yeah. frosted tips. Yep. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, oh gosh, the days. The good old days.
0: <laughs> I'm like Kenwood Mall baby. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
2: Kenwood Mall. There
0: you go. I um I, I think back to those days when, you know, we were literally using people's bodies to sell clothes. You know, you'd yeah. put men and women out there shirtless, standing in a mall and just masked in Abercrombie and Fitch odor mm-hmm. and perfume and cologne. And you would, you know, people would salivate as they walk by and then people would take pictures like they're a tourist
2: attraction. Yeah, I and mm-hmm. um,
0: I remember their a lot of their advertising on like their bags. You know, there's like mm-hmm. naked people. And it's interesting because in some ways you want people to have freedom to express their their sexuality and freedom to express themselves but at the same time when we use bodies as a way to sell stuff you know like that's sensationalizing it and 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 normalizing it um and so we don't see that anymore Abercrombie and Fitch got a ton of heat for that a few years ago um and and they definitely don't do that yeah so it's it's changing it's it's getting better I don't I don't know though because I feel like
1: all TV shows, not all, but a lot of TV shows have it. Podcasts people listen to, most of the crime dramas that people listen to involve. It's if I am, I would be surprised if they didn't involve sexual assault or rape in any of the crime dramas that are popular. Yeah, yeah. I don't... And so it's like that normalizes it. It's I want to explore it more on my own just to understand the languaging around what is actually happening from a psychological state within it but and I was thinking about for you like when because you're stunning you're so beautiful Mm -hmm. and your case being so big and you talking about how at the end you were kind of frustrated with it do you believe and do you think that you being so beautiful had something to do with how big the case got
0: wow I've never been asked that before I do actually I guess I've just never talked about it because it's kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, it's weird. About. You're like, yeah. what? Yeah. What are you going to say? No, I mean, actually, I remember my mom explained like, wow, you're really taking me back. So during the trial, when the trial happened, I remember my mom explaining like one of the trial days to someone and she was like, you should have been there. Like when, when Britney when, when they opened the door and they let Brittany into the into the um What's the courtroom? Room? Courtroom, mm-hmm. yes. yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, into the courtroom to testify, she said the the entire jury they just gasped. Oh gosh, that's the. Whole... And I, they're like,
2: "Yes, I can't wait to hear about it." Yeah, like actually, we're just, just creating like a cliff, a, a, a narrative, a, a scene in a movie. Yes, you know, and and it's it's so interesting how I don't mean to cut you off. I want you to continue. It's no. like it's so, and I I want to hear like your experience with this and the prep. In terms of like when you testified like it is interesting how they coach people to kind of create a feeling for the jury Mm -hmm. empathy yeah Mm. and it's just it's an interesting thing like as a a child you know basically like what what was that like that's so interesting i've never thought about all of this welcome to almost 30 (laughs) podcasts i
0: love this conversation um yeah because I mean I had to be coached eight times you know every time I'd go in and it's interesting by, your lawyer. by my by my lawyer yeah and it's interesting gosh this is this is bringing up so much it's so interesting that you say that because I recently I recently reached out to the sex crimes detective on my case um, she's a female she's the first person I actually ever spoke publicly um, about my sexual assault with she's the one who got me into speaking um, and my attorney and um because I'm talking to them about something I'm, I might be meeting with my um, assaulter, which is something else kind of big, but wow, yeah. Um, and when I reached out to her, she's like, you know, I haven't heard from you in a couple of years. And she said, you know, you were the most difficult client I ever had. Mm. And she said, but it was the most impactful case that I mm. ever did.
2: Um, difficult, why?
0: I asked her and she said, you were just kind of difficult. You were kind of combative. And she said, you didn't really want to be there. And, um, she said, but then when you got on the stand, which they talked about during the, um, I remember one of the news anchors said 20 years of covering court trials, we've never seen a rape victim who was this strong, this composed, this poised, who was able to look her rapist in the eye and said, you did this and you're going to pay. Like it's, and, and now looking back on it, it was, they definitely did sensationalize just how strong I was and. I don't even know if I answered your question. Yeah. I'm kind of just like no, reliving did. this
2: all out yeah, loud and trying to piece it's, it's it like, all together. But course. yeah. It's also like, you didn't want to be there. Like, yeah, no, you didn't want to be there. Like, you know what I mean? It's an interesting thing to kind of be like, you were really difficult, but... Yeah. It's almost interesting too. It's like your person, your you know, your lawyer
1: who who did an amazing job with you, but it's like, she probably had the expectation of you to be crying and sobbing and weeping. And to be a certain way, to Mm -hmm. be super broken and super victim mentality. And for you to not be in that state probably was surprising. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just, you know, I think about your case too. And I also think about the fact that the media does, you know, it's like the Amanda Knox. Mm -hmm. It's a very weird, random, you know, it's not a random story, but it's a very weird story. But they always talked about her being attractive. Mm -hmm. John Bonet. it's because she was like an attractive, quote unquote, little girl. And the media attention on cases like that, if someone wasn't, quote unquote, by our standards, attractive is not there. And it's like, not that I'm saying that your case would not have the media attention that it would, because it would. But there is something to that where I'm talking about the the sensationalization of a case and then it being uh, rape and something so aggressive and then when it's also paired with someone that's very beautiful it's like
0: well and I think you can also tie into the sentencing like when I talk about my case and the fact that this man was sentenced to 60 years you know I always when I get up and talk on a stage about sexual assault it's always very conversational so uh it's interactive I ask questions like how do you all feel and what I do is I actually don't even tell them that I'm a survivor until about halfway through my program and instead of saying, I'm going to show you a story about myself, I say, okay, now I'm going to show you a two-minute news clip about someone who was sexually assaulted, but I don't tell them it's me just because I want to get like their clear perspective without you know any kind of bias or we can't see this because it's her. Right. And then I say, what? Okay, now that we've watched this news clip, what feelings, what thoughts, what comes up to the surface? And there are... A couple of things that always come up. Number one is why does she have to be strong? Like it's okay to not be okay. Number two, why did he get a 60 year sentence and he's African-American? Do you mm-hmm. think that has something to do with it? Mm-hmm. I think it does. Mm-hmm. That part. Yeah. And then um, there's one other thing I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, yeah of course. The 60 year sentence is is a big thing because you don't, you don't really see that. Now, 30 years of that sentence was an extended sentence because he was a habitual offender. Uh-huh. But even still, 30 years compared to someone like Brock Turner from Stanford, right. who was sentenced to six months. Wow. For doing the exact same thing. His was, her, she was in an alley, correct? They were behind a, a, dumpster. Dump, a dumpster outside of a frat party. Um, and there were two bystanders who caught him red-handed. Um, the evidence was all there. But yeah, he was only sentenced to six months. Um, and he only served three months. Uh, he was he was let out after three months. That that wow. judge has since essentially been removed from his wow. position, but right. he was still, you know. Um, so that's what I, I bring up. You have this boy, this white male from an affluent community who's sentenced to six months, serves yeah. three months for doing essentially almost pretty much the exact same thing yeah. to me. But yeah, compared to a guy who's an African-American male from the inner city of Indianapolis. He probably has experienced
1: sexual trauma in his life as well. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's the thing that's interesting too about, you know, your story.
1: When you start to tell it and then your lens gets bigger and then you see more.
0: Which people people are kind of um, giving me a hard time actually sometimes about that. About which part? Like when you, so you just brought up, you know, like he was probably sexually assaulted and Uh and your your lens Mm -hmm. gets bigger. So that's Mm -hmm. something that I've been diving into is the prevalence of, or the correlation between adversity or trauma of and course, yeah. incarceration. Yeah. yeah, And that's something that they used in the case. Um, his defense team pointed out is the fact that he had experienced all of this trauma growing up. Yeah. And for me, I've just been kind of getting more curious about that. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm now building a curriculum for female prison inmates. It's a healing curriculum. It's a 12-week curriculum. Um, but the Rhode Island, which I live in Rhode Island now, the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, 92% of their female population, they've all experienced Mm. horrible adversity. And so that's something that I want to dive into because I've also been in that space. Like the reason I ended up in jail, even though I was there for only a couple of days was because I didn't know how to move through my shit.
2: Yeah. You mentioned um, possibly meeting your assaulter. So I'd love to kind of dig into like, have you forgiven him? How how have you just navigated that connection? You know, I don't mean connection like a a positive connection, but it's just like um, thinking about him as another human. Right. And why would you want to meet him? Sure. So I have forgiven him. I think I probably forgave
0: him about two or two, three, maybe four years ago. Somewhere around that time. Um, But yeah, I held a lot of bitterness and resentment. And then I think when I started diving more into my story and my pain and why I made the choices that I did, it always came back to my trauma. Not that it's an excuse. But as I started to study more about like the neurobiology of trauma um, and ACEs and neuroplasticity and just how our trauma affects us physically, mentally, and emotionally, you know, it it leaves an imprint on our lives forever. I started to realize this is the way that I am. Again, not that it's an excuse, but it's okay for me to be this way. And um, and so then I started thinking a little bit more about him. And I was like, holy shit, you know, he he did have some trauma. Not that it makes it okay what he did to me. But I don't think he's ever been told in his life or that he's ever been told like, you you can make a different choice like you can you can go down a different path and a little bit of what i talked about at, at the good fest was when i was in that prison cell <laughs> and i came to the realization that i was in jail at the same time that he was and i was like holy holy shit you know like i'm not better than him he's not better than me oh, we were both dealt some really shitty hands in life and he chose the path of bitterness and that was the road that i was going down and so but by the judge saying we're giving you a second chance, I'm like, has he been given a second chance? You know, um, so he's he's probably going to spend most, if not the rest of his life in jail because he has um, he, ha- he has really poor health. Oh. Um, but I had the reason I reached out to the judge and, or not the judge, the prosecuting attorney and my sex crimes detective, which the attorney is now a judge in Indianapolis, was because I wanted to get there. Opinion on they call it restorative justice, which is where you bring victims and perpetrators together for reconciliation. And I I think that that, especially when it comes to like re-entry back into society, that can be something that that can help. Yeah. But I think more so for him, I think my my faith has a lot to do with it. I just believe in forgiveness. And so I want to meet with him and just tell him I forgive you. And my family is completely against it. The attorney and the detectives and the they're both pretty, pretty highly against it as well, because he was not remorseful in the least bit during oh, wow. the trial. No, not at all like he he was combative, he blew kisses at my dad and said, "I'll be out." like oh, he wow. was really wow. disrespectful, and that's a lot oh. of the reason why he got a higher sentence as well,
2: so they're they're know,
0: really against it.
2: Well, do you know okay? if he has changed that
0: so they looked into it for me and they saw that none of his good behavior years essentially have been added on and that he hasn't done you know he's been in jail now for 10 years or 12 years 10 years 10 years i'm sorry um and he's done nothing to speed up the process you know they can take courses they can do you know kind of get involved he's done nothing which leads them to believe that he hasn't hasn't tried to better himself and so I think their main concern is we don't want you to go in with the expectation that he's going to be this change person. Yeah. And we also don't want you to re-harm yourself. Mm. Um, but I, I know I'm ready. Right. I think I'm, I'm at a place where my, my healing process, my self-care process is is pretty good. Um, I feel strong enough to do it. And I don't at all expect that he's actually going to be remorseful. But I think it's maybe less for him and more for me.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that he was like that during trial. Yeah. yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so interesting. You know how you, you know we have so many we have so many conversations on this podcast and mo- whenever we talk about situations in which people are going down a wrong path or they've dealt with certain pains or situations in their life it almost always leads back to sexual trauma. The prevalence of it in our society is so great. It's it's just shocking, and especially with the inability to like to deal with it, especially for someone you know like him, an African American living in Indiana, which is you know Gary's one of the poorest cities in the United States. There probably is that happening quite in a, a quite rampant pace, quite rampantly, and then also too, no ability or opportunity to to fix or or heal. So it just builds upon itself cycle it's a cycle and and to that point i think something too that's interesting about your case and i think also too that helped to get a lot of the media attention too is that people really love people don't love this but there's a situation where people can see a case like yours where a isolated incident happened he is very obviously and clearly the bad guy he is acting as if the bad guy you are being very strong but it's one situation that happened and it's almost movie-esque in the way that it happened girl pulls over Tires flat, you know. This situation happens when you approach shock factor. The shock factor when women approach you that have, mm-hmm. and I, I guess I'm just thinking about the women that experience sexual trauma on a regular basis with people with their family. It's so much. It, it's grayer, um, in the sense. Or so. What do you have to say to that? And what do you think about that when you when people approach you that have gone through that?
0: So that's the one thing that breaks my heart is when I have women or men survivors come up Mm -hmm, to me mm -hmm. afterwards and it's almost like they apologize beforehand. Like they're like, I know like my experience is like nothing like yours, but you know, and it's, it's almost like they have to validate, validate what they went through. And again, I said it at the good fest. Trauma is trauma. Pain is pain. You know, there's compound or big T trauma, which are things like sexual assault, um, you know, grief, violence, Um, and then there's little t trauma, which is like neglect, heartbreak, emotional abuse, things like that. But across the board, whether it's big t or small t trauma, these traumas affect us in the exact same way. Um, And so I always have to tell people, you know, my case is very rare. Predominantly sexual assault in this country, and I think probably in other countries, is committed between two people who know each other it's not a stranger rape it's not law and order svu someone in an alley that is not that is a very small margin of cases um but that's what's portrayed is that it has to be the word that they that i used in my dissertation was sexy yep then people feel like their experience or their story is not validated which plays even more into the shame factor and the no one's going to believe me or it was my fault. And what I have to tell people to that to like, especially like when it comes to people that we're in relationships with, like when sexual assault happens, um, a lot of people think, well, why didn't I see the signs beforehand? Or like, why didn't I tell them to stop? Or why didn't I say no? And when we experience something like sexual assault, Our body enters into, you know, freeze or fight, flight, or freeze. Um, And freeze is tonic, tonic immobility. But in 70% of sexual assault cases, tonic immobility is what happens, which is where we freeze, kind of like how jellyfish play dead, you know, Mm, to like protect themselves. Like it's our natural instinct. Like I'm going to survive this. I'm going to do whatever they say. I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to yell. And so I think that plays in a lot to not only when we talk about the way that we investigate sexual assault because police officers don't know about the neurobiology of trauma, which is asinine to me. So they, they see a hole in a victim's story or that doesn't yeah. make sense or why don't you remember or why didn't you fight back? Which is something they said to me because wow. at one point, <laughs> I did try to fight back and then you know he hit me in the face multiple times, said, stop the car, I'll kill you. So I stopped the car, did whatever he wanted. He then got out of the car and walked around the front of the car. Um, to come around to the driver's side. And as he walked around the front of the car, I sped the car up and he went up onto the windshield, cracked the windshield, but my window was open. And so he Uh. took his hand like through the window and like held onto my collar as the car started to speed up. And he said, stop the car, I'll kill you. And I slammed on the brakes. And that's one of the things that the police, that the defense team brought up. They were like, you were behind the, the wheel of a vehicle. He was on foot. Like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you stop the car? You could have easily drove off. But that's how, that's how our, our bodies respond. And so especially when you have breeze and tonic immobility, and then you're in a relationship with someone, you know, or like this is someone that you've dated or someone that you've hooked up with before. It's like, of course, no one's going to believe me. You know? Um, totally. And so in some ways, my case makes it even harder mm. to, for survivors to find that validity because I almost push them more into that, that zone of this wasn't a sexual assault. Like this, this isn't what you see on TV, right. which is, which is unfair. Um, so that's something
2: I, I bring up often. Um, yeah. That tonic immobility, like how did you feel it manifest in your body like years after?
0: Yeah. So what happens is when your body goes into tonic immobility, you essentially become disassociated. Um, and so you, your brain essentially shuts off, like your cortisol completely over floods your brain and, um, your hippocampus, which is where your memory function is. And that's why we have memory lapses. A lot of, like we saw with the, um, Kavanaugh case, you know, there's a lot of things she didn't remember. A lot of survivors don't remember their assault, but what they remember are, sounds or smells it's all sensory fragments and so for me you know i think the first experience i had of like excuse me that that flashback or that trigger was when the police officers went to pull me out of the car and it was like oh i feel danger like my body feels danger i have to fight back um but yeah smells shell gas stations like because it was at a shell gas station that he helped me change my tire and then i let him into the car Um, but yeah, I think for, you know, like when we think about soldiers who come back from war with like PTSD, like even a firework will set them off. It's the same thing with a survivor. Um, but they each have their own, you know, kind of different experience. And so what we have to do is we have to learn how to reassociate because then we get stuck. And essentially what happens during, uh, disassociation and tonic, tonic immobility is that we become disassociated from our prefrontal cortex, which is up at the front of the brain. And that's where your sense of self, your um, executive function, your self-love is. Like that's where all that, your identity, it's all up there. But because we become detached from it, we then get stuck in our amygdala, which is in the back of our brain. And that's your fear response center. So that's why survivors have really bad triggers. That's why the smallest things can set them off because they're stuck in a state of fear and anger and grief and, and sadness. And so... Um, exposure therapy like you were talking about that helps to rebridge um, with your brain and then also like embodiment like learning how to live in your body
2: again and stuff like that not sure if you heard but third love has their perfect fit promise 60 days to wash it and wear it if you don't love it returns are free incredible I mean, millions of women have tried these bras. They're uh, modern mesh, incredible cups from AA to I and bands 30 to 48. There are over 70 sizes, including half sizes, which is unique to 3rd Love. I just love this brand. They are so thoughtful. The bras are incredibly made. Um, I'm dying over my t-shirt bras right now. They're super soft, supportive just really comfortable. I have the Pima cotton t-shirt bra in, uh, there's like this kind of beautiful lilac blue slate blue and this dusty rose pink. It's gorgeous. Um, And I also have been loving the eyelet lace balconette bra. Really darling. And the thing is most other brands charged more based on sizing and at third love bras cost the same no matter the size same comfort, same perfect fit, same fabric, same style, same price, no matter what the size. Uh, so we'd love for you to try Third Love Almost 30 Nation. We have a discount for you. If you go to thirdlove.com/almost30, you can get 15% off your first order. So that's third t h i r d love.com/almost30 and you'll get 15% off your first order. We get asked all the time what probiotics and what digestive enzymes we are taking and the answer is always Silver Fern. Uh, We've learned from Silver Fern and from our dear friend Charity Lighten that if you heal your gut, you heal your body and these products have certainly proven that my digestion is on point, y'all, and everything else is just working so well because of that. And these probiotics are lab tested and guaranteed to contain the strains that will survive throughout your gut and bring your renewed digestive comfort and relief quickly. And so you have to, you have to make sure that your probiotics have 100% sustainability so it survives throughout your digestive tract. So this is very important and something that they care about here at Silver Fern Brand. So trust them so, so much. They also have a bomb protein powder that is also a pre and probiotic. Try it out. I love the chocolate. And they have a probiotic for children. Come on. It's especially formulated to ensure that your children are keeping their gut in peak condition with clinically proven strains and the correct dosages for children kids. So if you'd like to try Silver Fern brand, their products are amazing. Go to silverfernbrand.com. Use our code almost 30 for 15% off your first order. That's silverfernbrand.com. Code almost 30 for 15% off your first order. Yeah, on a soul soul level,
1: like in the spiritual community, it's talking about like splitting from your soul. So, you know, oftentimes like in shamanic journeys or ayahuasca journeys, you know, you're re-meeting your soul. So there there is traumatic experiences that happen within our lives that cause us to split. If you think about, I think about this with Britney Spears. She's had a lot of traumatic experiences in her life. So it's almost like she's split where she doesn't live fully present in her body. She's not a, a, she's not a, she's not a person that isn't in home in her body. She's, she's someplace else. And there is a body that's living on this earth. That's kind of doing this thing from the lower, the prefrontal cortex is the lower part, right? The prefrontal is the The top. top She's the the amygdala. Amygdala. So they're acting from an amygdala amygdala state. And it's interesting that when trauma happens too, it's like the soul kind of has to leave the body to like not experience that. So it's like your body is still there with, you know, the muscle memory and everything like that. Um, what are some of the physical, like physical ways that trauma manifested in your body and manifests in other people's bodies?
0: Sure. So, um, emotion. So, our bodies. There's a really good book. I can't remember the author, but it's called "The Body Remembers." Oh, yeah, I've heard of it. It's amazing. Um, I have it. Yeah, I can't remember who the author is. Um, but I'll just give you an example. So, for instance, at um, our recent On the Mend retreat. We had a woman who dealt with um, trauma at a really, really young age. She was uh, sexually abused as a child and she doesn't remember most of it. Um, I, On the retreats, I do the cognitive or mental um, coaching and the emotional coaching. And then my partner, Em, she does the body work. Um, So she's a fascial stretch therapist. She does the somatic stuff um, and a trauma-informed yoga instructor. And during one of the classes, she had the women kind of doing like stretching their neck like this, Mm -hmm. you know, putting their um, palms under their chin and stretching it back. And this girl, as soon as she did that, she had a flashback and it was something that she had not ever, ever, ever remembered because she was in an embodied state, you know, M really helped them to like become present in their bodies, feel the emotions, feel where the tension is holding as soon as she did that, she had a flashback. And so even like when people are uh, impaired, like intoxicated, there are certain things that your body remembers. Um, That's why survivors of sexual assault, they don't like certain positions with their partners. um, And they might not remember why, but then when they go back, go and meet with like a somatic therapist, they'll have, and they become embodied, they'll realize, wow, that's what happened to me. Mm. So the body definitely does remember. And, I think M's more of an expert at that than I am, but she's she's great at helping people to release the tension and the trauma from your bodies because it does rest in our tissues. Mm. Yeah, we always
1: say the mind is the co- the brain is the command center, and then the tissues and the fascia hold all the memories. Yes. Yep. And just really fast, the book is called "The Body Remembers: The Psycho Physiology of Trauma and Trauma Treatment" by Babette Rothschild.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, what are your Preferred, like, and I'm sure you still practice today modes of healing.
0: Yeah. So I think that my work is really grounded in healing. Yeah. I think for me, being able to speak out my trauma narrative has been incredibly therapeutic. Mm -hmm. But at the end of like our healing retreats, we do something called reintegration, which I think they do a lot in, in a lot of trauma work. But it's essentially the ability to look at your pain and look at your trauma. And reintegrate it into your life in a meaningful and positive way. Um, And so reintegration has really been like, I think, the foundation of my healing. And it helps me, you know, because like I'm going into prisons and then I'm doing the speaking and then I'm doing the um, retreats. And uh, for four years, I traveled as a photojournalist and I was working with women's organizations in conflict countries. So I worked at rape crisis centers and trauma centers. Um, as a documentary photographer and a writer. So I was helping other women to tell their story. And so I'm always exploring like just new ways of trying to live with my pain in a more meaningful way. But when it comes to, I think like the physical and the body healing, because I did suffer with eating disorders. And I think that was just a lot of the shame and the self-hatred. A lot of that... Uh, was learning how to love my body again. I felt so disconnected from it. And so what I do in my workshops, especially with college women, because college women are having a really hard time loving their bodies, just young women are. Well, I think maybe women across the board, but um, especially in younger populations, I'm seeing it more and more. But one thing that helped me and what I tell them to do is to write letters to their bodies. It's like, we'll write love letters. (laughs) And so back in the day, I wrote love letters to my body, to my heart, and my mind. And I would actually put them in the mail. I'd put a stamp on it. And I'd... You know, just no address. Just Britt's body, Britt's heart, Britt's mind. And I'd put them in the mail and they disappeared. I have no idea what the mailman... They were like, what the, what the fuck is <laughs> uh, But for me, um, those were, were things that just helped me. Um, I do... Breathwork, pranayama, that really helps me to ground and just center myself, bring myself back down to calm. Um, Stretching, I really like lifting. It helps me to feel strong. Um, I think like I felt small in my space for a while. And so I here and there, I'll get really like excited and, you know, do a lot of lifting. But yeah, it kind of comes and goes just about feeling it out. Yeah. Yeah. What? Can you talk more about the restorative justice work that you're doing? Yeah, so the restorative justice and what that word means. Um, so restorative justice is where you bring um a perpetrator and a victim together for reconciliation. Um, so I don't know that it's particularly work that I'm doing that that's more so of like my personal healing mm-hmm. that I'm looking into. And um I am in the process Of trying to reconnect with my
1: perpetrator, yeah.
0: So that was the restorative justice. I guess I meant um, the work that you're doing with the females in the um, prison system. Prison system, yeah, yes, yeah. So um, I don't know if there's exactly a term for that, um, but I'm building a healing curriculum, and so it's very similar to the the retreats that I do, but they will be like one to one and a half hour classes, and it's over twelve weeks. Uh, we're kind of building it, building the curriculum now. But it's more so just helping women to learn to live with their pain and walk with their pain instead of run from it or medicate or numb, whether that's through drugs or alcohol or toxic relationships. Or So yeah, that's kind of, kind of what I'm doing now. That's a crazy. Are you working with
1: any prison to...
0: I'm working with the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. They are essentially... Um, you know, they're like, we're not experts at this, you are. Um, So I'm kind of just now in the process of building the curriculum. Uh, At the end of August, I go in to meet with the warden and uh, to talk with uh, some of the the program planners about what that will look like because they essentially have to, you know, say yes or say no to my curriculum. But I think they're very, very, very open to it. They just, there's not a lot of mental health programs and wellness programs in prison systems. Um, So that's what kind of we're going to, going to focus on wow that is, that's revolutionary yeah. yeah from the the mental emotional and physical perspective wow so i think and it's it's hard because when we talk about healing i think that a lot of it is classist you know 100%. like the resources are only available for a certain population which is completely unfair but i also think that we're stuck in this mindset that like we have to go to doctors to fix us and to heal us and pain is something that we live with for the rest of our lives. Like our trauma will always be there. I always say it's like, it's a, it's a lifelong journey, not a single destination. And so empowering people with their own practices and routines and skills that they can use on their own, that they don't have to go to a doctor for, um, I think is really important. You know, because I don't, I used to go to therapy, but like I don't go to therapy. There's a lot of, I, I don't pay anything for my healing. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't go to doctor's. Um, and so I want everyone else to realize like, I can do this on my own, you know, I don't have to go to rehab or I don't have to go to a recovery center, which, and if, if you did and that works for you, that's fantastic.
2: Right. But a lot of people don't have access to that. Completely. So they feel hopeless. And it's super interesting to think about like the, um, I guess like scarcity mentality around providing this type of healing or therapy or care for those that are incarcerated, like thinking that they're just a lost cause that it's just like a black hole to throw money and resources into. But I think like, and I just love what you're doing. It's like this awareness around it. And then also like it is healing generations backwards and forwards, you know? So it's like, how can, and your work is doing this, but it's, it's it's something that makes me think of like how can the awareness of yes if you put resources into people who are incarcerated and even if they never get out like it is truly healing generations forward and backwards so yeah. like because I, I mean
0: when I think about the way that I first started coping
2: or you know grieving
0: um, I think back to the fact that I carried on a lot of my parents. characteristics and their their behavioral patterns when it comes to 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 healing um and so yeah it is generational and then when you even talk about like the neuroscience and like the dna you know when we're born we carry on the emotions and the hormones of our of our parents those thought processes i mean they're they're deeply ingrained so Mm. yeah it would be breaking i call them generational curses yeah Mm. it's a it's my, my, my Bible talk coming out. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah it's, yeah, it's definitely a spiritual thing, I believe.
1: For your, the, as far as you being, you know, having meth in your system and that conversation when you found out, what was that like? And do you feel like that affected your brain chemistry?
0: I do. I have a very addictive personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was told, as far as I can remember, I was in a grocery store.
1: Right,
0: who told you? My mom. We were just out doing some, doing some grocery shopping. Um, and I didn't really understand at the time but I think over the years the layers peeled back I feel like I've actually learned more about it from other people than my mom because I think she still lives with some shame which makes me really really sad for her Um, and but yes it definitely affected me and you know for some reason I was so just swallowed up by alcohol but when it came to drugs I was terrified. Just so terrified. You know, I'm, and with with alcohol, I was so reckless to the point that, you know, obviously I I literally died. But with drugs, it just terrified me. And I wonder if that has something to do with it. And I've always said if I ever went down that path that I would I wouldn't have been
2: here. I don't think I I don't think I would have been here. Yeah. Wow. Last question for me. Can you talk to us about your retreats? Yeah. And and what, what you offer and and yeah. how that came to be. Mm-hmm. So the
0: retreat um, on the mend retreats was an idea that I had like three years ago. But, you know, like when we plant seeds, it takes a while sometimes for them to come to fruition. Um, I wanted a retreat or just a place where women could come together and um, explore the different modalities of their trauma. I think when I started learning more about trauma work, um, but from working in trauma centers and realizing that there is a whole system to it. You know, it's mental, it's yeah. emotional, it's physical. Like when you look at the um, cognitive triangle, you know, our thoughts um, impact our emotions, our emotions impact our thoughts, our thoughts impact our behaviors, our behaviors. And it's all this big tangled web that we know nothing about. And so I wanted a space where we could really dive into all of those, to all three of those factors. And I wanted to be able again, to put the, to put the power back in the hands of the, survivor of trauma and to just show them and like empower them with the tools and the practices and the rituals that they could take back to their own life. So the retreats are um, right now they're four day retreats. They're female healing retreats for female survivors of trauma, um, trauma all across the spectrum. And they're very intimate. So we only allow like six women because we want to make sure it's a super intimate space where we can really dive in with people, but it's myself and M. Uh, em and I have been best friends for 22 years. And so she does the body work and I do the mental and emotional work. But it's just, uh, essentially it's split up into, into, you know, kind of courses or classes, workshops, I guess you could say. So there's personal one-on-one sessions with myself and M and the, the woman. Um, and then there's group sessions where we work through the mental and emotional with me and then there are classes every day uh, trauma informed yoga classes and somatic classes with M. Um, so, there's typically where we stay, there's a, there's a yoga studio, and then we also believe in grounding. So, our retreats are typically in beautiful, isolated places like natural, you know, like national parks where people can really become present and aware of their surroundings. I think when we deal with trauma, we're either living in the past or we're living in the future. Mm -hmm. So that present moment awareness is really, really big because that's how you get to embodiment and um, that's how we can really process our thoughts better. So we do a lot of outdoor excursions um, and then we bring in an Ayurvedic chef because it's important, especially when we're healing, to eat foods that are healing. And so we talk a lot about the gut and brain relationship and... Our chef comes in and she gives us, she cultivates a menu for the retreat. So we have healing food throughout the whole retreat. And then um, all of the women go through an Ayurvedic class as well. Yeah. And then there's, there's downtime, there's sisterhood. I mean, it's uh, the last retreat we were on. uh, I will say, I think it's, this has been like the most profound work that I've done so far. Like the most fulfilling and people are like, oh, you get up and you talk to like, you know, like 3,000, 4,000 people. And I'm like, it's nothing compared to working with five women hands-on for five days and seeing their lives truly transform. Mm. It's amazing. And then afterwards, we have um, post-retreat coaching as well because we think it's really important uh, to follow up. We don't want them to feel like they're coming to this retreat and then they're like, okay, bye. So uh, we're really strategic about help- helping them set up a healing plan into their life that's realistic setting up a supportive environment and a supportive support system. So weeding out the people that are not good for you. Mm. And then we end with again, reintegration, which is how can we find a way to take this trauma and this pain and reintegrate it back into your life in a meaningful way. And that's just more sustainable. Mm. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to it. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's incredible. What would you say to uh,
1: someone that's listening now that has experienced trauma uh, that maybe has told
0: someone, maybe hasn't, but is living with it now. Be kind to yourself. I think that we look at our trauma like it's a burden. And I think when we shift our perspective and we start asking ourselves, you know, what's the evidence in our life that this is a burden? You know? And we kind of like map that out. We might realize that it's maybe not a burden. And... Um, don't know maybe just diving into your pain and trying to see like how can this which these are the what if questions i started with when i spoke at the good fest these are the questions i always come back to sometimes when i'm having a hard time is um how is this pain meant for me how can this pain make me better and what hidden power is in this pain um and just know that it's not it's one chapter in your life you know it's not your entire life story we don't have to be defined by our pain um, yeah, just be kind to yourself and know that you're going to have days where you, where you slip up, you know? Uh, healing is not, it's not a perfect journey. And I think people think that we're just going to wake up yeah, one day and we're yeah. going to be healed and we're just going to be A-OK. Hey, okay, and that's not um, that's not how it works. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Yeah,
2: yeah. and the asking the right questions, like the ones you gave examples of, is I think really important, you know, to skip too far ahead and then have to take steps back to, to re-dig into it. But I just, I think those are really thoughtful grounding questions that people can use. And um, I think there's
0: also, um, sorry, I just wanted to add yeah. one thing. There's a process too, like when it comes to reintegration. Right. I think I jumped into my purpose too soon. And I got to a place where I was like dealing with secondary trauma. Um, and I just, I wasn't able to carry my pain and carry other people's pain at the same time. And so it was harmful to me and it was harmful to, to the other people as well. Um, and so I always say there's a process to repurposing or reintegrating your pain. Number one is you have to learn how to pour into your own pain first. Then you can pour into like your passions and your power. And then you can pour into people. And then you take all three of those P's. And you pour that into your purpose. So it's like, there's, a, there's an order of operations. I think some people skip ahead sometimes. They jump right into their purpose and they're not ready for it. You know, mm-hmm. it, can be, it can be harmful. So it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Any books or resources you would, you would mention for them? Your um, retreats, obviously.
0: So The Body Remembers was a good one. Yep.
1: Are there specific therapists for trauma?
0: general therapist would they be have the tools i think so yeah yeah they they should um i know you know they split up therapists like this one focuses more on addiction this one's more on grief this one's more on ptsd sexual assault um so you can look at kind of the categories that they dive into but books um the book by brene brown the gifts of imperfection i think when you were talking about like if someone's in their pain i think this is more of like a spiritual like Soulful book. Yeah. You know, because I think sometimes spirit and soul comes first before we can make that executive function decision. Like we have to feel it. Um, sometimes we can walk into it and then the, the beliefs will follow. But that book is really, really good. It helps people to kind of overcome shame. And um, that, yeah, it was really helpful for me.
2: Perfect. Well, yeah. Thank Amazing. You. We'll link those for y'all. Thanks for being here. And yeah, thank you. Your work is just so impactful on... What feels like a systemic level, and um, you know, our, anything we can do to support you and help you, and especially our community too. I know they will just be really touched by this story and your mission. So,
0: yeah. thanks for having
2: doing me. Great work. Yeah.
0: So glad to have you. Yeah. American people connect with you. They can follow me on Instagram at the Brit Piper with two T's. My website is BritneyPiper.com. It's not spelled like Britney Spears. Like Brittany T T A N Y,
2: piper.com. Yeah, your website is beautiful. Thank
0: you. I've Perusing. built it myself.
2: Yeah, no way. Yeah, great That's job. Uh,
0: or they can go to OnTheMenRetreat.com. Amazing. Oh,
2: great. Yeah. Thanks, thank birth. you so much. Thank you, ladies. All right, guys. Thanks. We love you. Thanks. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Brittany, for joining us. You can find out more information about Brittany where she's speaking, her retreats, etc. at brittanypiper.com. Love you, girl. Love you.
1: I wanted to take a little moment to shout out our ambassadors who are running the show with our ambassador program. So when Lindsay and I went on tour last year, we saw the amazing connections and community that was created when we visited these cities. And we know that there are women all over the world. There are humans all over the world that are going through changes, evolutions, transitions, and we would love to support you. And the way that which we are supporting you is through our ambassador program, which helps create community where you are. Uh, So thanks so much to our Almost 30 Ambassadors. You are helping women in 70 different places to feel better about who they are, about their growth, about their process, and we
2: appreciate you so very much. Truly. I think there's almost 100 ambassadors all over the world. As of now, you can learn more at almost30podcast.com. Click on the Ambassador tab under Community and If there is not a group near you, you can start one. And truly there is no pressure. You know, we don't want this to ever feel like a job or a burden. It's really just a way to empower you to create that community and sisterhood in your region. Yeah. Love
1: you. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Ambassadors. We love you. We're on tour. Come join us and then follow us on Instagram, Almost 30 Podcast. I'm
2: 100blog on Instagram. And I'm at Lindsay Simsek. And if you have any suggestions for Krista's new Instagram. Yeah, please. Let's go.
1: You guys want to help me bombard Krista on Instagram. At Krista. Name. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm like, actually, I was thinking about a celebrity that had like her her name. I'm like, oh, did their agents reach out or what? Oh, maybe. We, yeah. I know. That could be a good one. I know. All right. Life. Life. We love you guys. Love See you on the next one. Bye.